Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing from EPAM Continuum. It's no secret that there are a lot of problems with the United States healthcare system. Why is healthcare coverage attached to employment? Why are there so many people uninsured? Why does it cost so damn much? The United States spends the most money per capita on healthcare, but has consistently ranked last in life expectancy amongst other OECD nations. Don't get me wrong, healthcare reform is extremely complicated, and there exists a litany of problems at its core. But one thing is clear who it is designed by and who it is designed for play a big part here. We often talk about healthcare from a policy perspective. In fact, you just listened to me do exactly that. What we're often missing is the perspective of the patient, of the physician, that deeply human perspective that we champion every day here at EPAM Continuum. And today, that's exactly the perspective we have for you. Danielle Ofri is an attending physician at Bellevue Hospital in New York City and a clinical professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine. She also co-founded and currently edits the Bellevue Literary Review. She's given TED Talks, is a regular contributor to the New York Times and Slate Magazine, and has authored close to a dozen books, including her most recent one, When We Do Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error. The list doesn't stop there, but you know, they only give me so much time for these intros. Listen today as our healthcare vertical lead, Jonathan Swerzy and Danielle talk about the pain points in EMR systems, why COVID-19 might be playing out so differently in the U.S., and why we need to normalize talking about mistakes in healthcare. I wanted to start, um, if we can, by talking about your new, your new book. So you, you just published a book, um, When We Do Harm, and in that... Um, just doing, you know, paralleling some of our own thinking and, and things we've been talking with folks about, um, you had this this observation about EMRs, um, and you wrote that the EMR con- conspires against integration by forcing information, as well as your flow of thought, into a rigid structure that's convenient for computer programmers and the billing department, but not necessarily logical for anyone taking care of patients. And so I, I wanted to just start by understanding from your perspective, how could we design a better EMR that meets the needs of physicians and, and patients and, and other people who, who interface with the systems? I'm glad you started with this, but if you wanted me to elaborate all the problems with the EMR, if we don't have 17 <laughs> hours, we can't do that. But and I, you know, I just spent this morning in my in clinic and I was just tearing my hair out. A patient wanted a copy for a biopsy report, which is not normally released because it's sensitive information. So I was trying to, you know, release it to her account after the fact. I think I spent close to 45 minutes thinking, this is crazy. I'm trying to outsmart the system. And that's what it feels like so often that we're just spending all this time trying to make the system work. So how to make it better? You know, honestly, it's really a question for developers. But I think a key thing is that these folks need to sit with us, the doctors and the nurses, by our side for eight hours at a shot and see what it is we do and how to do it. I mean, the the paper chart, which I agree is antiquated, who wants to chase down missing charts? But there was something elegant and coherent about a paper note. Everything was there, really concise, thorough. You could catch it in one glance. And that um, that's all gone. And I would love to, to pull it together, but I, I feel like I need people who are actually seeing patients to be designing this and not billers or, or people who just do programming. 
So I'm just I'm curious because you know when we talk with folks who who do deal with programming in that area, they say, of course we talk to physicians. Um, what's what's missing? I, this sitting down with you sounds really important. Right? Are they talking to us or are they sitting with us for eight hours? And I, I've never seen anyone. Now maybe I just it's my hospital, but no one's ever come and sat with us and said, okay, let's see how it works with you. Um, so a, a simple thing. So when I want to when I look at a paper chart. I can glance in one second and I can tell if that note is of value, a thorough, um, well-reasoned note, or just a quickie refill for Lasix, right? That's really easy to tell in a glance. In the computer, every note roughly looks the same. Not until you open it up and dig through six or seven or 12 windows, do you find out, ah, is that the note I need or not? Which means in practice, who wastes their time going back more than a couple of notes? So everything goes to the dust heap. And so I'd love a way to indicate the good notes, find a way, and find a way to not have these voluminous notes. And I don't want to rag on my specialty colleagues, but some of my nephrology and rheumatology colleagues, I don't know if they simply copy and paste every relevant study, which, and I get why they do it. But it becomes so impossible that their notes are unreadable. And I just scroll down the 10 pages so I find the three lines at the end, the nugget that I want to know. And I wish the nugget could be front and center. Um, and then everything else comes behind it. Um, I, I wish there was a way. And I don't understand, for example, medications. I just, I don't understand it. I was renewing medications for a patient today. And I could not find the Lovenox, right? An important anticoagulant. The dermatology creams, they live on forever. They never go away. But somehow the cardiac meds or, uh, or the Coumadin dosing, they evaporate. And I have not yet been able to figure out why some meds disappear and some don't. Um, and, I, and I can't prioritize them. I can alphabetize them. Um, uh, I can go by date. But I want to prioritize them in a logical way. I want the important meds that I care about on top. I want the Tylenol and the cortisone cream and the Maalox down at the bottom. And I, I can't, I can't make it mimic how I think, and, and that's what so fr frustrates me. Mm, that's really inter interesting. Have you ever, like, so there's paper on the one hand, right? And I, and I, I do get that. And on the other hand, there are the EMRs that you've been working with. Have you ever seen an example of an EMR that was done well, like maybe in another country, um, where the payer system's different? Yeah. Um, Hmm. I, you know, I don't. I haven't used them, and I think it's not until you live with them, till you get in bed with them. You know, for a year, do you recognize? Now, so we switched from Quadramet to Epic last year, and the switch was a nightmare. Now, a year later, when the COVID pandemic hit, we were really grateful for that because we, you know, were so hard hit here in New York, and our our sister hospitals in Queens were even harder hit than we were at Bellevue. So we began taking transfers from them, uh, patients in batches of 30 or 40 at a time. So if you can imagine, 40 patients plucked out of the ER come straight over. They all have the same diagnosis, often similar last names and similar sounding HPIs, similar stories, high potential for things getting mixed up. So thank goodness we had an EMR that communicated between hospitals that we could, you know, get the information. So it was very, we were very grateful to have it. On the other hand, um, it was so laborious sometimes that we would just ignore it and then try to just get back at it later. And it, it, it impeded trying to get stuff done. It sort of got in the way of patient care. And so again, not till you use it, do you know, and there are some aspects that are great, really phenomenal, and some aspects that just make me want to jump off a cliff. 
Interesting. And those hospitals in Queens. So I actually, I grew up in Queens. Um, I'm from New York um, originally. I, I still, in some ways, although I've been in Boston for, I don't know, 11 years, I consider myself a New Yorker in so many ways. Um, were they on Epic as well? Is that what made that transfer easy? Yeah, or? yeah. So our entire corporation, the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation, moved to Epic over the course of a year or two. Um, so yes, they were, and that was what what made it work. That we were all on, on the same system, and it was relatively easy to check between the hospitals. So th- thank goodness. Um, but pluses and minuses, and I think for every, there's never going to be a perfect system. I'm not expecting that, but I do. Uh, I would expect that we keep making it better. And one of the things I feel like I've noticed is that they put out this EMR. It's expensive, um, but then to customize and make it work, you then have to the system has to buy a lot of add-ons and pay extra to make the system work for you. And much of making it work for you actually falls on the clinicians. Oh, well, Dr. Ofri, just customize it to make it work for you. Well, that's, you know, many, many, many hours of work to make all the phrases you want and the, the, how it look for you. And, and they're helpful. It makes it better. But it's a ton of work. And, and so I feel like one thing the EMR does is a transfer of labor from the administrative side of things, right? Making the chart and the system work, that's not a doctor nurse job, that's the administration side. But now it falls on the clinicians to somehow find time to to customize the EMR to make it uh, workable. Interesting. And I, I guess when you think about it, you know, as you mentioned that, I wonder how many classes did you take in medical school or in your residency that, that covered EMR usage? <laughs> zero. And I yeah. before, and before we got Epic, we had a little training session and, and the training sessions, you know, bless their soul, those tech folks are trying to help us, but we were coming from different worlds, you know, and the, um, and they were uh, kind of corporate trainers and we were clinicians and we don't think and speak alike. So sometimes the pace would be so slow and we're, our brains are faster than that. Um, and on the other hand, we'd ask questions, which didn't make sense to them because they come from a different world. And so it was the, it was just a clash of cultures. And a lot of time they weren't that effective. You know, we could have probably, it could have taken 15 minutes to condense that training for what we need. And then we could have used 10 hours from master clinicians who've made the system work well for patients. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense and is a really practical sort of suggestion. And I'll add one more thing to that. It can't yeah. be in the first week. You need those right. training sessions to happen after we've gotten used to it. So those sessions would have been helpful maybe a month or so on um, when we had enough of our feet wet. And the other uh, thing I noticed is that apparently in the official manual, they say, you know, doctors don't need, you know, any extra time with their first few weeks of patients because it's so easy to use. But that was simply not true. And that we, you know, we got, I think, half the patient load the first week, three quarters week two and three by week four, we're experts, we're back to a full load. And that was not realistic. It really took two to three months to be able to use this. And it would have been fair. Of course, that's a cost, but that's part of the cost of the system. Again, that's that's now dumped on on the hospitals to absorb that cost, but it takes that long to use it well and to be able to actually give patient care and not be worrying about the uh, EMR during your patient visits. So you, you, Talked a lot, or, you know, and I know Bellevue has been, you know, at the center of, of the COVID response in, in New York City, and I know the hospital's um, history with with Ebola um, preparations and, and and its history even beyond that. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk now about preparing for for that second wave, or maybe some parts of the country, um, you know 
COVID is just continuing to spread. I'm just wondering, as you think about it, what, what sorts of things um, can and should we be doing now to be better prepared? So, as you mentioned, we we did uh, handle the only Ebola case uh, that a public hospital dealt with. And so we developed a special pathogens unit at, at the Ebola time, developed a super you know secure unit for that. And that special pathogens team, which I actually hadn't realized till COVID, had been meeting weekly ever since Ebola, keeping tabs on Zika, chikungunya, uh, polio, yellow fever, all the things that are are always flaring in different places in the country. And of course, as a public hospital right near JFK Airport, we do receive many of these patients. So they were keeping tabs. So when COVID came around, they weren't starting from scratch, which I appreciate. And I think that every hospital, in essence, needs something like that. And of course, that costs money to have people available and on call, but to to think in advance. So now that we've done it once, and of course, in the springtime, despite the preparation, you know, we thought, oh, we'll get a handful of patients. We were not expecting this many patients. But now that we've done that, now that we've built the airplane while we were flying it, now we can plan that airport much better. And so we now have a roadmap for how to ramp up, how to increase our hospital capacity by 25 or 30 percent, both physical beds, staff, all the things you need. I think we can, we're now planning for that. We're planning for an influenza uh, spike as well and the issues of patients presenting with similar symptoms. We now have the testing capacity up. So all those things that we had to do on the fly, we now have them and we haven't yet gone back to normal. We've only done, for example, in our outpatient side, only about um, one third of our patients or maybe even one quarter are coming in person. And we're keeping everyone still on telehealth and video visits for the foreseeable future until we're sure we don't have a second wave coming. We're not going back to fully in person until we have a, a COVID vaccine. Hmm. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think I'm hearing that elsewhere um, as well as people are thinking about what to do. Um, one of the things I've been talking with folks about is just to get a perspective um, on, you know, on the United States. Um, you know, we are less than four and a half percent of the world's population. Um, to date, we have over 25% of, of the confirmed cases of COVID-19. And I'm wondering, you know, from the front lines and from your view, what is it about the United States that seems to make it such a, a fertile ground for COVID? I think that in, in American history, we have this image of the rugged individual. And that's had things that have been advantageous, but of course, many disadvantages as well. And certainly when there's an issue of the common good, and clearly an epidemic, a pandemic, is an issue of common good. Wearing a mask doesn't help you, but it helps the other person. That's not in our DNA or not in our culture. I don't want to say DNA. And we watch other countries have really rallied in, in a different way. Uh, Canada, you know, just to our north, we, we don't differ that much genetically, socioeconomically, and in so many ways, yet they have a different attitude. And of course, our leadership did did not uh, work to, to bridge that gap. I think our leadership actively worked against it, um, sort of sowing the individualistic, well, why bother about someone else? And then, of course, this um, routine disdain for science, which is shocking and no other similar developed country is so disdainful uh, of science and facts. It, it, as we watched this in the spring, it was just in disbelief and also anger. You know, those folks up there who were kind of making light of things, you know, they weren't there watching people die, watching people gasp for breath, die alone, or watching the, you know, the hospital staff run frantically around really 
doing everything it takes, they weren't there. And, and to, to sort of have this sort of freedom and luxury to sort of protest the, the lockdown and protest the mask wearing, that seems so selfish after a while. And if you haven't been there, I mean, really, it's not your place to to do that. You could do something more constructive and something more that we care about each other. And, and that's what it takes to control a pandemic. And that's why we're not there. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a practicing anesthesiologist, and um, he was talking about what, what the what the pandemic looked like in Boston at his hospital. And he said, you know, one of the challenges we've had is people who need non-COVID care who should be coming to the ER or not. And he said, you know, we used to get diabetics who would be sent in and they had an, you know, a foot ulcer, but now they're coming in and they need an amputation because we can't treat it because they're waiting too long. Um, and it feels like that's that there's somewhere this calibration, right, between how do people engage with the healthcare system when it's not COVID? Well, you touched upon an important thing that we also are planning for, something that we didn't really plan for. You know, we were so busy dealing with the crisis at hand that we didn't really think as much or didn't have as much bandwidth to think about all the other patients. And you are absolutely correct in that many patients suffered and we're seeing that now. There's, in essence, three to four months of missed care. And if you think about the typical patient with chronic illnesses like diabetes and emphysema and congestive heart failure, they usually come to see their doctor every you know, three or four times a year. So everyone lost one full cycle of care. And you know, we, we switched on a dime to telehealth and we have 70,000 outpatients. So it was an army of people calling them, but it's just so many patients that inevitably some got lost in the cracks. And so we do need to plan ahead now. How do we help those patients? And the other category of patients, you know, we canceled all the elective surgeries, only emergency surgeries, but there is a third category, the urgent but not emergent surgeries. And right, yes, we can put off the you know, cosmetic surgeries, the knee replacement's fine. But I had a patient, for example, with a mitral valve hanging by a thread. It wasn't an emergency yet, but if we wait too long, it will become one. And his surgery was scheduled for March 18th. And so it immediately got canceled and it took, you know, several months to, to redo. And, you know, that was a really dangerous and scary time. I had patients who were about to get their cancer surgery, not emergency, but not a thing that you can put off too long. And so we, we hadn't really thought about that category of patients who clearly suffered, their care suffered. And we need to think ahead about where does that third category come in? And then how do we think in advance about the patients whose ongoing care will collapse if you know, they miss a chunk of their care. You know, in your in your writing, you've always been very open, and I think that that's as true. And you know, when when we do harm, as as in, in other of your works, um, it, you know, you are really very open about some of your own mistakes and very reflective. And and I'm wondering if it was difficult for you to put that down in writing. Um, how how is that? Yeah, you know, what was that experience like for you? And what what was it like to have the book published with this now out in the world? It took a long time. I wrote in the book about an error that I made as a second-year resident when I neglected to look at a CAT scan and took someone's verbal report that everything was fine and I missed an intracranial hemorrhage, which of course is a disaster. But the experience was so devastating at the time that I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my, my intern, I was a resident, I didn't tell my attending, and I sure as heck didn't tell the patient. In fact, it took me 20 years till I could talk about it and write about it. Because it just, it was so overwhelming, the, the shame and the guilt. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, feeling guilty about things. And, and that's sort of easy because guilt is about 
wanting to fix the system and make it better. So I know I'll never take a verbal report again. But shame is about you and about you as, as your personal failing. And that's about. And that's why it took me so long till I was old enough and, and had a little bit of distance and, and maybe a few grains of wisdom that I could talk about it. It's not easy. I mean, you put out your warts. On the other hand, in some ways, it's the easiest part. You know, here I can give you all the places where I went, you know, did wrong. Um, the harder part is coming up with the systemic solutions to make it better. But I think if we don't lead by example of talking about the errors, then everyone's going to clam up. I mean, who wants to talk about how they screwed up, how they killed the patient or harmed a patient? I mean, this is devastating when we, we do that. And if we all clam up, we'll never know, you know, where are the errors? Where should we be putting our resources? We don't really know because our human instinct is to clam up. So it's both very awkward to open up, but it's also somewhat of a relief to get it out there. Okay, done. I've, I've put all my personal dirty laundry out and you know, I guess I'm, I'm surviving uh, with that. But then it also opens the door for other people who feel now feel more comfortable coming forward. So I look at it again as sort of community service. Hmm. And, you know, I think about your, your other points in the book, um, not just related to errors, but to, to near misses, right? If you have shame and embarrassment um, about an error or a mistake, um, when you have something that just happened to not cause harm, right, is maybe the definition of a near near miss. Is that different in the way that you handle it? Um, talk, talk with us a little bit about that. Sure. I, I find the term near miss to be somewhat comical. Yeah. Um, in fact, that that missing the, the intracranial bleed, in fact, was a near miss because someone else caught it. So the patient actually did fine. Right. And so in terms of medical error, it kind of gets brushed to the side. Well, the patient did fine. Someone else saw that, you know, but it's still, it's the same error. Had I discharged the patient home that night, they could have died. So a near miss just means the patient got lucky that time. That's all it yeah, means. Yeah. So it's really the same in terms of fixing the errors. The near miss is the same as the error that has a bad outcome in terms of where to find the sources of problems and how to fix them. But of course, we don't have a good way to report near misses. I mean, why would you want to talk about an error that almost harms someone? You know, you might be giving someone a suggestion to sue you. So we naturally clam up. And so the near miss is something that, and I think the near miss is really the iceberg that's way, you know, under the water of this enormous repository of potential harm. It's the minefield. And we just see the tip of the harms that come to light. And so, again, that requires top down. That requires the chair, the dean, you know, the director of the hospital to talk about their near misses and what it means and why should, should we should be reporting near misses because they are, that's the chance to save the next patient and to frame it uh, as that, that's the bravery. That's when you do um, the real benefit for your patient is coming forward with the near miss. And maybe we can do it anonymously and in an easy way, but that's where we need to, to know what's going on. Hmm. You know, I think in our society, right, if you just step back for a moment, um, we have this archetype of a physician, you know, and maybe the physician is viewed as a hero um, or almost godlike, right? And we've been, it's almost ingrained to expect perfection from, from our physicians. And, and I've always thought that's not really very fair. Um, physicians are, they're people, right? You're fallible. Sure. And I think that that perception is just as much from ourself as from society and from patients. I think we expect perfection. Our whole system of training is built around perfection, that when you get called on in rounds or get pimped during a, you know, a procedure, that you get the answer. Otherwise, you 
get shamed, you get humiliated, you get, you know, dressed down. And we take exams that are very rigorous. And, and so the expectation of perfection is from within. And that's problematic because when you expect perfection, then if you have a near miss, you of course won't admit it. Our, our, it, it causes us to lie and to cut corners and to, to fudge these things because it would affect the image of perfection. And so I, I think that the, the real work has to be done on our end first, that what is heroic? Heroic is being able to come forward and say, I made a mistake. Or, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. You know, we associate heroism with the doctor who knows it all, the really fast, sharp, smart doctor. But maybe the heroic doctor says, you know, I don't know what's going on. I got to go figure this out. I need some help. I think I messed up here. We should laud that as the hero. Um, you know, the, the term hero was used a lot during COVID. And, I, and all of us felt so uncomfortable. We did not feel like heroes. And and it was the wrong word. What we wanted to be is who we were, nurses and doctors who work hard all the time. We're working a little, working harder now because that's part of the job. We would just love some of that respect at other times. You know, nurses so often get underpaid for their job and now they're heroes. Well, if they're such heroes, pay them, you know, a living wage all the time. Don't short staff them and expect them to take care of, you know, twice as many patients with half as many staff. That's what we really want. And, you know, and we appreciated the, the outpouring of support. I mean, it was really wonderful. The seven o'clock cheer was very meaningful. Um, um, but the term hero, oh, just always, it's like a coat that doesn't quite fit well. Do you think that we'll ever have a point where physicians and patients can talk about mistakes um, in a way that's open and honest and not threatening um, and informative, you know? With the the specter of malpractice in yeah. our country hanging over everything, yeah. I think that's going to be unachievable. Now, it might be different in a country like Denmark, um, which doesn't have that system, where it has a non-punitive system for handling adverse outcomes, more akin to workers' compensation. If you get injured on the job here in the U.S., you don't have to sue your employer. You go to workers' comp, you file your claim. A committee, you know, adjudicates that. And if you fit certain criteria, you get a compensation for that. And that's it. You don't fight it. You don't appeal it. There's no lawyers involved. And so in Denmark, they instituted the same system for adverse outcomes. If someone got either an unexpected outcome or whose care wasn't as good as it should have been based on a standard of care, they can file a simple claim, one page, doesn't cost any money. You can do it. Your doctor can do it. Your spouse can do it. And they will adjudicate that. And in this way, many more patients will get their needs addressed. Um, this, the sums are smaller because it's you don't sure. have to, not covering litigation costs, but more patients get it and they get it faster. In the U.S., it takes if you actually pursue a malpractice case, it takes years, and those are painful years. And even if you win, quote win, it's not a win. Everyone's miserable. The patient's miserable. The family's miserable. The doctors, the nurses, no one, no one comes out experience saying, "Boy, I feel like I've you know." I'm in a better place now. It's miserable, even if you win. And of course, most patients don't win. Um, but in this uh, in this patient compensation system, many more patients can get some kind of compensation. The case can be settled, resolved within a few months. And the other thing is that it offers the um, the government a database of adverse outcomes, and the data collected there. So if suddenly, there's one hospital with lots of claims for. For example, decubitus ulcers, pressure ulcers. Well, boy, what's going on there? Let's work. Let's investigate and help that hospital get better. 
And, you know, in the U.S., we do not have a national repository of data for errors and adverse outcomes, which is one of our problems. But having a non-punitive system where, and, and by law, nothing in this compensation system can be used for litigation. That's a separate system. If you need to sue someone for negligence, completely separate. So you're protected. And doctors themselves are much more likely to file the cases themselves if there's been an adverse outcome. So we have a way of getting more honest data. And that, of course, helps the system as a whole. Sure. And, and even in the U.S. with how long it takes, I'd imagine a number of cases just settle. And settlements usually involve no admission of wrongdoing. And so it's forever lost. Um, right. And, and of course, the vast majority of patients, more than 99% who think they have a claim, won't be taken because the uh, the injury has to be severe enough to net a, a settlement large enough to cover the exorbitant costs of, of running a suit. So most patients, even if they've had genuine harm done, won't get, get their day in court. Uh, if we have time, just, just one last question. Um, I'm curious, you know, in, in many industries, when, when someone steps forward and brings a flashlight onto the profession, um, the person who's carrying that flashlight isn't always um, receiving maybe the most favorable response from their peers. And so I'm curious about how your, how your fellow physicians have reacted to your book. Um, maybe not at Bellevue, but elsewhere, have you gotten any backlash? Um, what's been the feedback and how are you, how are you managing with it? You know, in general, I think most people have, have been supportive um, in that I, th I believe that most doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals, they want to make the system better. They don't want to be harming their patients. And so in, in so much that I've been advocating for the system's fixes, for example, if a, if a nurse grabs the wrong, administers the wrong medication, she's grabbed the wrong medication. Yes, she's made the error. You can go ahead and sue her. But no doubt there are systems in place that made that error more likely. Maybe she's got too many patients or the names sound alike or the bottles look alike or the light's really dull and you can't read the labels or she's being interrupted every five minutes by patients asking for a ginger ale and directions to the bathroom. So there's always systems that make it more likely. Yet all we do is discipline the nurse, sue the doctor. And so by pointing out that we still have to take responsibility if we make a mistake, but it doesn't end with an individual person. There's always a system that made it more likely to happen. And in the age of our EMR that really dominates our attention and distracts our thought process, I, I believe that we actually make more errors, especially in terms of misdiagnosis, because we're so frazzled by the minutiae of the EMR. And I think that's actually making errors more likely. So I think that in answer to your question, that most nurses and doctors I've found, at least the ones who've spoken to me, have been relatively supportive because they do want to make the system safer. Okay. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing your thoughts. This has been really informative, and I just really appreciated having a, a chance to speak with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Danielle Ofri was our extremely insightful and passionate guest today. Thank you again for our time. Jonathan Swerzy is our resident healthcare expert and knows all the right questions to ask. Our producer, Ken Gordon, keeps this kite flying. Kit Palalas is our sound engineer, making our Zoom calls sound sparkly. And I'm your host, Kyle Wing, recording this on my phone. Until next time, thank you.